0: Section twenty one of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rachel Linton, Bristol, UK. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book six, containing about three weeks. Chapter seven a picture of formal courtship in miniature as it always ought to be drawn and a scene of a tenderer kind painted at full length it was well remarked by one and perhaps by more that misfortunes do not come single this wise maxim was now verified by sophia who was not only disappointed of seeing the man she loved but had the vexation of being obliged to dress herself out in order to receive a visit from the man she hated that afternoon mr Weston, for the first time acquainted his daughter with his intention telling her he knew very well that she had heard it before from her aunt sophia looked very grave upon this nor could she prevent a few pearls from stealing from her eyes come come says Weston, none of your maidenish airs i know all i assure you sister hath told me all is it possible says sophia that my aunt can have betrayed me already i ay, says western betrayed you i why you betrayed yourself yesterday at dinner you showed your fancy very plainly, i think but you young girls never know what you would be at "'So you cry because I'm going to marry you to the man you're in love with.' "'Your mother, I remember, whimpered and whined just in the same manner, "'but it was all over within twenty-four hours after we were married. "'Mr. Bliffle is a brisk young man and will soon put an end to your squeamishness. "'Come, cheer up! Cheer up! I expect an every minute.' Sophia was now convinced that her aunt had behaved honourably to her, and she determined to go through the disagreeable afternoon with as much resolution as possible, and without giving the least suspicion in the world to her father. Mr. Bliffle soon arrived, and Mr. Western, soon after withdrawing, left the young couple together. Here a long silence of near a quarter of an hour ensued, for the gentleman who was to begin the conversation had all the unbecoming modesty which consists in bashfulness. He often attempted to speak, and as often suppressed his words, just at the very point of utterance. At last, out they broke in a torrent of far-fetched and high-strained compliments, which were answered on her side by downcast looks, half-bows, and civil monosyllables. Bliffle, from his inexperience in the ways of women, and from his conceit of himself, took this behaviour for a modest assent to his courtship and when to shorten a scene which she could no longer support sophia rose up and left the room he imputed that too merely to bashfulness and comforted himself that he should soon have enough of her company he was indeed perfectly well satisfied with his prospect of success for as to that entire and absolute possession of the heart of his mistress which romantic lovers require The very idea of it never entered his head. Her fortune and her person were the sole objects of his wishes, of which he made no doubt soon to obtain the absolute property. As Mr. Weston's mind was so earnestly bent on the match, and as he well knew the strict obedience which Sophia was always ready to pay to her father's will, and the greatest still which her father would exact if there was occasion this authority therefore together with the charms which he fancied in his own person and conversation could not fail he thought of succeeding with a young lady whose inclinations were he doubted not entirely disengaged of jones he certainly had not even the least jealousy and I have often thought it wonderful that he had not. Perhaps he imagined the character which Jones bore all over the country, how justly let the reader determine, of being one of the wildest fellows in England might render him odious to a lady of the most exemplary modesty. Perhaps his suspicions might be laid asleep by the behaviour of Sophia and of Jones himself when they were all in company together lastly and indeed principally he was well assured there was not another self in the case he fancied that he knew jones to the bottom and had in reality a great contempt for his understanding for not being more attached to his own interest he had no apprehension that jones was in love with sophia and as for any lucrative motives he imagined they would sway very little with so silly a fellow Bliffle, moreover, thought the affair of Molly Seagrim still went on, and indeed believed it would end in marriage, for Jones really loved him from his childhood and had kept no secret from him, till his behaviour on the sickness of Mr. Allworthy had entirely alienated his heart and it was by means of the quarrel which had ensued on this occasion, and which was not yet reconciled, that Mr. Bliffle knew nothing of the alteration which had happened in the affection which Jones had formerly borne towards Molly. From these reasons, therefore, Mr. Bliffle saw no bar to his success with Sophia. He concluded her behaviour was like that of all other young ladies on a first visit from a lover and it had indeed entirely answered his expectations. Mr. Weston took care to waylay the lover at his exit from his mistress. He found him so elevated with his success, so enamoured with his daughter and so satisfied with her reception of him, that the old gentleman began to caper and dance about his hall, and by many other antic actions to express the extravagance of his joy for he had not the least command over any of his passions and that which had at any time the ascendant in his mind hurried him to the wildest excesses as soon as bliffle was departed which was not till after many hearty kisses and embraces bestowed on him by Western, the good squire went instantly in quest of his daughter whom he no sooner found than he poured forth the most extravagant raptures bidding her choose what clothes and jewels she pleased and declaring that he had no other use for fortune but to make her happy he then caressed her again and again with the utmost profusion of fondness called her the most endearing names and protested she was his only joy on earth sophia perceiving her father in this fit of affection which she did not absolutely know the reason of, for fits of fondness were not unusual to him, though this was rather more violent than ordinary, thought she should never have a better opportunity of disclosing herself than at present, as far at least as regarded Mr. Blifil, and she too well foresaw the necessity which she should soon be under of coming to a full explanation after having thanked the squire therefore for all his professions of kindness she added with a look full of inexpressible softness and is it possible my papa can be so good to place all his joy in his Sophie's happiness which western having confirmed by a great oath and a kiss she then lay hold of his hand and falling on her knees after many warm and passionate declarations of affection and duty she begged him not to make her the most miserable creature on earth by forcing her to marry a man whom she detested this i entreat of you dear sir said she for your sake as well as my own since you are so very kind to tell me your happiness depends on mine how what says western staring wildly. "'Oh, sir,' continued she, "'not only your poor Sophie's happiness, "'her very life, her being, "'depends upon your granting her request. "'I cannot live with Mr. Blifil. "'To force me into this marriage would be killing me.' "'You can't live with Mr. Blifil," says Western. "'No, upon my soul I can't,' answered Sophia. Then die and be damned, cries he, spurning her from him. Oh, sir, cries Sophia, catching hold of the skirt of his coat. Take pity on me, I beseech you. Don't look and say such cruel. Can you be unmoved while you see your Sophie in this dreadful condition? Can the best of fathers break my heart? Will he kill me by the most painful, cruel, lingering death? Pugh. <laughs> cries the Squire, all stuff and nonsense, all maidenish tricks kill you indeed, will marriage kill you, oh sir, answered Sophia, such a marriage is worse than death. he is not even indifferent. I hate and detest him, if you detest an never so much cries western, you shall have This he bound by an oath too shocking to repeat, and after many violent asseverations concluded in these words, I am resolved upon the match, and unless you consent to it, I will not give you a groat, not a single farthing, no, though I saw you expiring with famine in the street, I would not relieve you with a morsel of bread. This is my fixed resolution, and so I leave you to consider on it. He then broke from her with such violence that her face dashed against the floor, and he burst directly out of the room, leaving poor Sophia prostrate on the ground. When Weston came into the hall, he there found Jones, who, seeing his friend looking wild, pale and almost breathless, could not forbear inquiring the reason of all these melancholy appearances upon which the squire immediately acquainted him with the whole matter concluding with bitter denunciations against sophia and very pathetic lamentations of the misery of all fathers who are so unfortunate to have daughters jones to whom all the resolutions which had been taken in favour of bliffle were yet a secret was at first almost struck dead with this relation but recovering his spirits a little mere despair as he afterwards said inspired him to mention a matter to mr western which seemed to require more impudence than a human forehead was ever gifted with he desired leave to go to sophia that he might endeavour to obtain her concurrence with her father's inclinations if the squire had been as quick-sighted as he was remarkable for the contrary passion might at present very well have blinded him. He thanked Jones for offering to undertake the office, and said, Go, go, prithee, try what canst do, and then swore many execrable oaths that he would turn her out of doors unless she consented to the match. CHAPTER Eight: THE MEETING BETWEEN JONES AND SOPHIA Jones departed instantly in quest of Sophia, whom he found just risen from the ground where her father had left her, with the tears trickling from her eyes and the blood running from her lips. He presently ran to her, and with a voice full at once of tenderness and terror, cried, Oh, my Sophia, what means this dreadful sight? She looked softly at him for a moment before she spoke, and then said, "'Mr. Jones, for heaven's sake, how came you here? "'Leave me, I beseech you, this moment.' "'Do not,' says he, impose so harsh a command upon me. "'My heart bleeds faster than those lips. "'Oh, Sophia, how easily could I drain my veins "'to preserve one drop of that dear blood?' "'I have too many obligations to you already,' answered she. "'For sure you meant them such.' here she looked at him tenderly almost a minute and then bursting into an agony cried oh mr jones why did you save my life my death would have been happier for us both happier for us both cried he could racks or wheels kill me so painfully as sophia's i cannot bear the dreadful sound do i live but for her Both his voice and looks were full of inexpressible tenderness when he spoke these words, and at the same time he laid gently hold on her hand, which she did not withdraw from him. To say the truth, she hardly knew what she did or suffered. A few moments now passed in silence between these lovers, while his eyes were eagerly fixed on Sophia and hers declining towards the ground. At last, she recovered strength enough to desire him again to leave her, for that her certain ruin would be the consequence of their being found together, adding, Oh Mr. Jones, you know not, you know not what hath passed this cruel afternoon. I know all my Sophia' answered he your cruel father hath told me all and he himself hath sent me hither to you my father sent you to me replied she sure you dream would to heaven cries he it was but a dream oh sophia your father has sent me to you to be an advocate for my odious rival to solicit you in his favour I took any means to get access to you. Oh, speak to me, Sophia, comfort my bleeding heart. Sure, no one ever loved, ever doted like me. Do not unkindly withhold this dear, this soft, this gentle hand. One moment, perhaps, tears you for ever from me. Nothing less than this cruel occasion could, I believe, have ever conquered the respect and awe with which you have inspired me. She stood a moment silent and covered with confusion, then lifting up her eyes gently towards him, she cried, What would Mr. Jones have me say? Oh, do but promise, cries he, that you never will give yourself to Blifil." Name not, answered she, the detested sound. Be assured I never will give him what is in my power to withhold from him now then cries he while you are so perfectly kind go a little farther and add that i may hope alas says she mr jones whither will you drive me what hope have i to bestow you know my father's intentions but i know answered he your compliance with them cannot be compelled what says she must be the dreadful consequence of my disobedience my own ruin is my least concern i cannot bear the thoughts of being the cause of my father's misery he is himself the cause cries jones by exacting a power over you which nature hath not given him think on the misery which i am to suffer if i am to lose you and see on which side pity will turn the balance "'Think of it,' replied she. "'Can you imagine I do not feel the ruin "'which I must bring on you, "'should I comply with your desire? "'It is that thought which gives me resolution "'to bid you fly from me for ever "'and avoid your own destruction.' "'I fear no destruction,' cries he, "'but the loss of Sophia. "'If you would save me from the most bitter agonies, Recall that cruel sentence, Indeed, I can never part with you. Indeed, I cannot. The lovers now stood both silent and trembling, Sophia being unable to withdraw her hand from Jones, and he almost as unable to hold it, when the scene, which I believe some of my readers will think had lasted long enough, was interrupted by one of so different a nature that we shall reserve the relation of it for a different chapter. CHAPTER nine, BEING OF A MUCH MORE TEMPESTUOUS KIND THAN THE FORMER Before we proceed with what now happened to our lovers, it may be proper to recount what had passed in the hall during their tender interview. Soon after Jones had left Mr. Weston in the manner above mentioned, his sister came to him, and was presently informed of all that had passed between her brother and Sophia relating to Bliffle. This behaviour in her niece the good lady construed to be an absolute breach of the condition on which she had engaged to keep her love for Mr. Jones a secret. She considered herself therefore at full liberty to reveal all she knew to the squire, which she immediately did in the most explicit terms and without any ceremony or preface. The idea of a marriage between Jones and his daughter had never once entered into the squire's head, either in the warmest minutes of his affection towards that young man, or from suspicion, or on any other occasion— he did indeed consider a parity of fortune and circumstances to be physically as necessary an ingredient in marriage as difference of sexes or any other essential and had no more apprehension of his daughter's falling in love with a poor man than with any animal of a different species He became, therefore, like one thunderstruck at his sister's relation. He was at first incapable of making any answer, having been almost deprived of his breath by the violence of the surprise. This, however, soon returned, and, as is usual in other cases after an intermission, with redoubled force and fury. The first use he made of the power of speech after his recovery from the sudden effects of his astonishment was to discharge a round volley of oaths and imprecations after which he proceeded hastily to the apartment where he expected to find the lovers and murmured or rather indeed roared forth intentions of revenge every step he went as when two doves or two wood-pigeons or as when strephon and Phyllis, for that comes nearest to the mark are retired into some pleasant solitary grove to enjoy the delightful conversation of love that bashful boy who cannot speak in public and is never a good companion to more than two at a time here while every object is serene should hoarse thunder burst suddenly through the shattered clouds and rumbling roll along the sky the frightened maid starts from the mossy bank or verdant turf the pale livery of death succeeds the red regimentals in which love had before dressed her cheeks fear shakes her whole frame and her lover scarce supports her trembling tottering limbs or. As when two gentlemen, strangers to the wondrous wit of the place, are cracking a bottle together at some inn or tavern at Salisbury, if the great dowdy, who acts the part of a madman as well as some of his setters-on do that of a fool, should rattle his chains and dreadfully hum forth the grumbling catch along the gallery, the frighted strangers stand aghast, scared at the horrid sound they seek some place of shelter from the approaching danger and if the well-barred windows did admit their exit would venture their necks to escape the threatening fury now coming upon them so trembled poor sophia so turned she pale at the noise of her father who in a voice most dreadful to hear came on swearing cursing and vowing the destruction of Jones. To say the truth, I believe the youth himself would, from some prudent considerations, have preferred another place of abode at this time, had his terror on Sophia's account given him liberty to reflect a moment on what any other ways concerned himself, than as his love made him partake whatever affected her and now the squire having burst open the door beheld an object which instantly suspended all his fury against jones this was the ghastly appearance of sophia who had fainted away in her lover's arms this tragical sight mr weston no sooner beheld than all his rage forsook him he roared for help with his utmost violence ran first to his daughter then back to the door calling for water, and then back again to Sophia, never considering in whose arms she then was, nor perhaps once recollecting that there was such a person in the world as Jones, for indeed I believe the present circumstances of his daughter were now the sole consideration which employed his thoughts mrs western and a great number of servants soon came to the assistance of sophia with water cordials and everything necessary on those occasions these were applied with such success that sophia in a very few minutes began to recover and all the symptoms of life to return upon which she was presently led off by her own maid and mrs western nor did that good lady depart without leaving some wholesome admonitions with her brother on the dreadful effects of his passion or as she pleased to call it madness the squire perhaps did not understand this good advice as it was delivered in obscure hints shrugs and notes of admiration At least, if he did understand it, he profited very little by it, for no sooner was he cured of his immediate fears for his daughter than he relapsed into his former frenzy, which must have produced an immediate battle with Jones, had not Parson Supple, who was a very strong man, been present, and by mere force restrained the squire from acts of hostility." The moment Sophia was departed, Jones advanced in a very suppliant manner to Mr. Weston, whom the parson held in his arms, and begged him to be pacified, for that, while he continued in such a passion, it would be impossible to give him any satisfaction. "'I will have satisfaction, are thee,' answered the squire. "'So doff thy clothes. At not half a man.' and i'll lick thee as well as was ever licked in thy life he then bespattered the youth with abundance of that language which passes between country gentlemen who embrace opposite sides of the question with frequent applications to him to salute that part which is generally introduced into all controversies that arise among the lower orders of the english gentry at horse races, cock matches, and other public places. Allusions to this part are likewise often made for the sake of the jest, and here I believe the wit is generally misunderstood. In reality, it lies in desiring another to kiss your ass, for having just before threatened to kick his for i have observed very accurately that no one ever desires you to kick that which belongs to him nor offers to kiss this part in another it may likewise seem surprising that in the many thousand kind invitations of this sort which every one who hath conversed with country gentlemen must have heard no one i believe hath ever seen a single instance where the desire hath been complied with a great instance of their want of politeness for in town nothing can be more common than for the finest gentlemen to perform this ceremony every day to their superiors without having that favour once requested of them to all such wit Jones very calmly answered, Sir, this usage may perhaps cancel every other obligation you have conferred on me, but there is one you can never cancel, nor will I be provoked by your abuse to lift my hand against the father of Sophia. At these words the squire grew still more outrageous than before so that the parson begged jones to retire saying you behold sir how he waxeth wroth at your abode here therefore let me pray you not to tarry any longer his anger is too much kindled for you to commune with him at present you had better therefore conclude your visit and refer what matters you have to urge in your behalf to some other opportunity." Jones accepted this advice with thanks, and immediately departed. The squire now regained the liberty of his hands, and so much temper as to express some satisfaction in the restraint which had been laid upon him, declaring that he should certainly have beat his brains out, and adding, "'It would have vexed one confoundedly to have been hanged for such a rascal!' The parson now began to triumph in the success of his peacemaking endeavours, and proceeded to read a lecture against anger, which might perhaps rather have tended to raise than to quiet that passion in some hasty minds this lecture he enriched with many valuable quotations from the ancients particularly from seneca who hath indeed so well handled this passion that none but a very angry man can read him without great pleasure and profit the doctor concluded this harangue with the famous story of alexander and clitus but as I find that entered in my commonplace under title drunkenness, I shall not insert it here. The squire took no notice of this story, nor perhaps of anything he said, for he interrupted him before he had finished by calling for a tankard of beer, observing, which is perhaps as true as any observation on this fever of the mind, that anger makes a man dry no sooner had the squire swallowed a large draught than he renewed the discourse on jones and declared a resolution of going the next morning early to acquaint mr allworthy his friend would have dissuaded him from this from the mere motive of good-nature but his dissuasion had no other effect than to produce a large volley of oaths and curses, which greatly shocked the pious ears of Supple, but he did not dare to remonstrate against a privilege which the squire claimed as a free born Englishman. To say truth, the parson submitted to please his palate at the squire's table at the expense of suffering now and then to this violence to his ears he contented himself with thinking he did not promote this evil practice and that the squire would not swear an oath the less if he never entered within his gates however though he was not guilty of ill manners by rebuking a gentleman in his own house he paid him off obliquely in the pulpit which had not indeed the good effect of working a reformation in the squire himself, yet it so far operated on his conscience that he put the laws very severely in execution against others, and the magistrate was the only person in the parish who could swear with impunity. Chapter 10. In which Mr. Western visits Mr. Allworthy. Mr. Allworthy was now retired from breakfast with his nephew, well satisfied with the report of the young gentleman's successful visit to Sophia, for he greatly desired the match, more on account of the young lady's character than of her riches, when Mr. Western broke abruptly in upon them, and without any ceremony, began as follows. There— you have done a fine piece of work truly you have brought up your bastard to a fine purpose not that i believe you have had any hand in it neither that is as a man may say designedly but there is a fine kettle of fish made on up at our house what can be the matter mr western said allworthy oh matter enough of all conscience my daughter hath fallen in love with your bastard, that's all. But I won't gare a hateny not the twentieth part of a brass farden. I always thought what would come of breeding up a bastard like a gentleman, and letting em come about to folks' houses. It's well for an I could not get at an. I'd a litun, I'd a spoiled his caterwallin'. I'd a taught the son of a whore to meddle with meat for his master. He shan't ever have a morsel of meat o' mine, or a varden to buy it. If she will hang, one smock shall be her portion. I'd sooner give my estate to the zinkin fund than it may be sent to Hanover to corrupt our nation with. I am heartily sorry, cries Allworthy. "'Pox o' your sorrow,' says Western. "'It will do me abundance of good when I've lost my only child, "'my poor Sophie that was the joy of my heart "'and all the hope and comfort of my age. "'But I am resolved I will turn right o' doors. "'She shall beg and starve and rot in the streets. "'Not one ha'penny, not a halfpenny, shall she ever have mine. "'The son of a bitch was always good at finding a hair sitting.' And be rotted ton i little thought what puss he was looking after but it shall be the worst he ever found in his life she shall be no better than carrion the skin o'er is all he shall ha and so you may tell un i'm in amazement cries allworthy at what you tell me after what passed between my nephew and the young lady no longer ago than yesterday.' "'Yes, sir,' answered Western. "'It was after what passed between your nephew and she that the whole matter came out. Mr. Bliffle there was no sooner gone than the son of a whore came lurching about the house. Little did I think when I used to love him for a sportsman that he was all the while a-poaching after my daughter.' Why, truly, says Allworthy, I could wish you had not given him so many opportunities with her, and you will do me the justice to acknowledge that I have always been averse to his staying so much at your house, though I own I had no suspicion of this kind. Why, Zounds, cries Western, who would have thought it? What the devil had she to do with him? he did not come there a according to her he came there a huntin' with me but was it possible says allworthy that you should never discern any symptoms of love between them when you have seen them so often together never in my life as i hope to be saved cries western i never so much as zedem kiss her in all my life and so far from courting her he used rather to be more silent when she was in company than at any other time and as for the girl she was always less civilton than to any young man that came to the house as to that matter i'm not more easy to be deceived than another i would not have you think that i am neighbour allworthy could scarce refrain laughter at this but he resolved to do a violence to himself for he perfectly well knew mankind and had too much good breeding and good nature to offend the squire in his present circumstances he then asked Western what he would have him do upon this occasion to which the other answered that he would have him keep the rascal away from his house and that he would go and lock up the wench for he was resolved to make her marry mr bliffle in spite of her teeth he then shook bliffle by the hand and swore he would have no other son-in-law presently after which he took his leave saying his house was in such disorder that it was necessary for him to make haste home to take care his daughter did not give him the slip and as for jones he swore If he caught him at his house he would qualify him to run for the gelding's plate when allworthy and bliffle were again left together a long silence ensued between them all which interval the young gentleman filled up with sighs which proceeded partly from disappointment but more from hatred for the success of jones was much more grievous to him than the loss of sophia at length his uncle asked him what he was determined to do and he answered in the following words alas sir can it be a question what step a lover will take when reason and passion point different ways i am afraid it is too certain he will in that dilemma always follow the latter reason dictates to me to quit all thoughts of a woman who places her affections on another my passion bids me hope she may in time change her inclinations in my favour here however i conceive an objection may be raised which if it could not fully be answered would totally deter me from any further pursuit i mean the injustice of endeavouring to supplant another in a heart of which he seems already in possession but the determined resolution mr weston shows that in this case i shall by so doing promote the happiness of every party not only that of the parent who will thus be preserved from the highest degree of misery but of both the others who must be undone by this match The lady, I am sure, will be undone in every sense, for, besides the loss of most part of her own fortune, she will be not only married to a beggar, but the little fortune which her father cannot withhold from her will be squandered on that wench with whom I know he yet converses. Nay, that is a trifle, for I know him to be one of the worst men in the world. For had my dear uncle known what I have hitherto endeavoured to conceal, he must have long since abandoned so profligate a wretch. How, said Alworthy, hath he done anything worse than I already know? Tell me, I beseech you. No, replied Bliffle, it is now past, and perhaps he may have repented of it. "'I command you on your duty,' said O'Worthy, "'to tell me what you mean.' "'You know, sir,' says Bliffle, "'I never disobeyed you, "'but I am sorry I mentioned it, "'since it may now look like revenge, "'whereas I thank heaven "'no such motive ever entered my heart, "'and if you oblige me to discover it, "'I must be his petitioner to you "'for your forgiveness.' "'I will have no conditions,' answered Allworthy. "'I think I have shown tenderness enough towards him, "'and more, perhaps, than you ought to thank me for.' "'More, indeed, I fear, than he deserved,' cries Bliffle. "'For in the very day of your utmost danger, "'when myself and all the family were in tears, "'he filled the house with riot and debauchery. "'He drank and sung and roared.' And when I gave him a gentle hint of the indecency of his actions, he fell into a violent passion, swore many oaths, called me rascal, and struck me. How, cries Allworthy, did he dare to strike you? I am sure, cries Bliffle, I have forgiven him that long ago. I wish I could so easily forget his ingratitude to the best of benefactors, and yet even that I hope you will forgive him, since he must have certainly been possessed with the devil.' for that very evening as mr thwackham and myself were taking the air in the fields and exulting in the good symptoms which then first began to discover themselves we unluckily saw him engaged with a wench in a manner not fit to be mentioned mr thwackham with more boldness than prudence advanced to rebuke him when i am sorry to say it he fell upon the worthy man and beat him so outrageously that i wish he may have yet recovered the bruises nor was i without my share of the effects of his malice while i endeavoured to protect my tutor but that i have long forgiven nay i prevailed with mr thwackham to forgive him too and not to inform you of a secret which i feared might be fatal to him and now sir since i have unadvisedly dropped a hint of this matter and your commands have obliged me to discover the whole let me intercede with you for him oh child said allworthy i know not whether i should blame or applaud your goodness in concealing such villainy a moment but where is mr thwackham not that i want any confirmation of what you say but i will examine all the evidence of this matter to justify to the world the example i am resolved to make of such a monster thwackham was now sent for and presently appeared he corroborated every circumstance which the other had deposed nay he produced the record upon his breast where the handwriting of mr jones remained very legible in black and blue he concluded with declaring to mr alworthy that he should have long since informed him of this matter had not mr Blifil by the most earnest interpositions, prevented him. "'He is,' says he, "'an excellent youth, though such forgiveness of enemies is carrying the matter too far.'" In reality, Bliffle had taken some pains to prevail with the parson and to prevent the discovery at that time, for which he had many reasons. He knew that the minds of men are apt to be softened and relaxed from their usual severity by sickness. Besides, he imagined that if the story was told when the fact was so recent, and the physician about the house, who might have unravelled the real truth, he should never be able to give it the malicious turn which he intended. Again he resolved to hoard up this business till the indiscretion of Jones should afford some additional complaints, for he thought the joint weight of many facts falling upon him together would be the most likely to crush him, and he watched therefore some such opportunity as that with which fortune had now kindly presented him. Lastly. By prevailing with Thwackham to conceal the matter for a time, he knew he should confirm an opinion of his friendship to Jones, which he had greatly laboured to establish in Mr Alworthy Section twenty one